Welcome to the Calvary Podcast, Lenten Preaching Edition, a ministry of Calvary Episcopal Church, recorded live in Memphis. The Calvary Podcast is weekly sermons, but also conversations, reflections, and provocations about the mystery of God and what it means to be human in the world in need of repair. afternoon. I am very honored to be here as part of this storied series. You know, I'm a student of history, and so when you said 98 years, that made me smile. Our passage this morning is likely a very familiar one to you. It comes from the book of Esther, chapter 4, verses 12 through 14. I'll read those now. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back an answer. Do not think that you are in the king's house and that you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, Relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. It was August of 1963, when Martin Luther King ascended to the podium at the March on Washington as the final keynote speaker. Like any good Baptist preacher, he went long. He was scheduled to speak for just four minutes and went on for 16 minutes but it was well worth it. He delivered what has become his most well-known oration, the I Have a Dream speech. Of course, we love to quote the section of the speech that casts the vision, that, that describes the dream. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Of course, in many ways, these words have been weaponized against the struggle for civil rights as people try to swerve past the truth-telling and the justice necessary to pass through on the way to making that dream a reality. Perhaps we would do well to, to back up a little bit in that speech and hear the words that come in just the opening strains. King said, we have also come to this hallowed spot to remind America of the fierce urgency of now. This is no time to engage in the luxury of cooling off or to take the tranquilizing drug of gradualism. Now is the time 
to make real the promises of democracy. Now is the time to rise from the dark and desolate valley of segregation to the sunlit path of racial justice. Now is the time to lift our nation from the quicksands of racial injustice to the solid rock of brotherhood. Now is the time to make justice real for all of God's children. I love that phrase, the fierce urgency of now. It's been almost 58 years since King first uttered those words in the nation's capital. But in a very real sense, that we as a nation and as the church have yet to respond to the fierce urgency of now. We have yet to heed that call from the streets of Ferguson to the contaminated waters of Flint, from Central Park to Kenosha, from the Delta to DC, we must still respond to the fierce urgency of now. Most of my unfiltered opinions unwisely perhaps get disseminated through social media. I shared a tweet not long ago that said this, in case you weren't sure, this is the civil rights movement of our day. It's happening right now, and how you respond in this moment is exactly how you would have responded to the movement of the 1950s and 60s. This is a struggle ultimately for the dignity and equality of all people, for honoring the image of God in every human being, but at the point of the spear at the tip is the struggle for black equality, the struggle for black lives to matter in a nation that has said in so many ways that we don't. And it is not an explicitly Christian movement this time, although there has been incredible participation among Christians. Much of the movement now is occurring under the banner of those three powerful, powerful words, Black Lives Matter. And as we engage in this season of Lent, it is a season of reflection, is it a season of preparation, it is a season even of lament as we look at the state of our world and, yes, even of the church. I don't know where you are today. In a sense, I feel as if I'm preaching to the choir, as if I'm among a coalition of the willing, as if I don't have to persuade you of the fierce urgency of now. But my burden today is that if there is something in you that is stirring, if there is something in you that is brewing, that you sense there's some action you need to take, some movement you need to make, I want to encourage you in that today. My, my, my worry is that as I study history, we look back at the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s, and, and, and although the black church was prominent, we ask of the broader church, where was the church? And as is the case just quite honestly among white Christians, where were white Christians? So often, in addition to actively promoting the oppression that the black freedom struggle has resisted, many were also passive, complicit, 
apathetic and silent when the fierce urgency of now came. And I don't know how long will last with our climate change and the pandemic and whenever Jesus chooses to return, but should we persevere for 20 or 30 or 40 years? I want historians to look back on this movement. And when they ask the question, where was the church? They can say, right there. They can say the church was at Calvary Episcopal. They can say the church was present for the fierce urgency of now. And I hope as we proceed, you would think about your place in the movement. Now, Martin Luther King termed it the fierce urgency of now, but you know, I think the Bible has a parallel. It would call it for such a time as this. For such a time as this, God does not work haphazardly. It is no coincidence that you are alive for such a time as this. It is no coincidence that someone who, who does racial justice for a, a, a living like I am is in the pulpit of this church right now. It's no coincidence that you're a member of this church or, or, or visiting and, and listening to this message right now. It is not a coincidence that Jesus has called you to follow him for such a time as this. There's no one on the bench on Jesus' team. Amen? Yeah. I don't know what Episcopalians do, but you can talk back. <laughs> Absolutely. I want to move briefly through this passage and look at, at, at three things. As we look at this passage from Esther, I want to talk about why now is such a time. Jamar, you made this bold claim. Now is the civil rights movement of our day. Prove it. I will. Then I also want to talk about how the church missed its time because it is, it is not inevitable that the church would show up in such a time as this. And indeed, in many instances, Christians missed it. And then I want to talk about how the church can respond this time. Why now is such a time? How the church missed its time and how the church can respond this time. Let me give you a little context because we jumped in chapter 4 of Esther. Understand that, that, that this takes place after the destruction of uh, the temple in Jerusalem when the Jews have been scattered far and wide. Some have been authorized to return to Jerusalem. Others remained in exile. We have the main characters, Esther, who is an orphaned Jewish woman whom this man Mordecai takes in. Eventually she becomes queen. We have this man, Mordecai, who is a Jewish man who raised Esther, his cousin, and he raised, him, raised her as his daughter because she was an orphan. And then we have a couple of other folks in the kingdom, Haman, who is a noble in king's court, and of course, King Xerxes. Esther becomes queen through a series of events. She has, to go under, she has to undergo 12 months of preparation before she can even see the king. And then when the king sees her, he's very pleased with her. But this man, Haman, tells King Xerxes that these Jews are a problem and that they should all be put to death. And the king, just taking Haman's word for it, signs a decree saying all the Jews will be killed. And so we catch up in the story in chapter 4 after Mordecai, the Jewish man, 
who raised Esther. He's heard of this plot, and he knows, hey, we've got somebody in the palace, another Jewish person, Queen Esther, in a position of power. She can intercede on behalf of the people. In other words, Mordecai was trying to tell Esther that the people were in imminent danger and that she had been strategically placed for such a time as this. So think about your placement right now, where God has strategically and uniquely positioned you for such a time as this. My foundational commitment in this sermon is that we are living in the modern-day civil rights movement. Freedom, justice, democracy are all in imminent danger, and all of these dangers have been present to a frightening degree as far as they impact the black community in America. And we, as the church, have been strategically placed to intervene for such a time as this. But what is this time, and why is now such a time? Let me count the ways. Things have been building for years, particularly around the issue of anti-black police brutality, but let's just look at the past year, 2020, shall we? We just passed not long ago the anniversary of the lynching of Ahmaud Arbery. White vigilantes saw, they pursued, and they killed. Then on March 13th, Breonna Taylor was lying asleep in her home when the police, in a no-knock raid, burst down the door and, and, in a hail of bullets, killed her. She was shot eight times. On May 25th, a, a, a black man named Christian Cooper was out bird-watching, bird-watching, in New York's Central Park. A, a, a white woman had a dog that was not on a leash, which was in contravention of the posted sign. When he approached her about it and said it needs to be on a leash, she called the police and acted as if she was in mortal harm. A call with, with, which in these times could easily result in imprisonment, brutality, or even the death of a black man. And on that same day, we saw that horrific video if you could bear to watch it, of George Floyd, a black man lying prostrate in Minneapolis with a white police officer uh, kneeling on his neck, an array of police officers all around him in a physical demonstration of what complicity looks like. Knee on Floyd's neck, hands in pockets for eight minutes and 46 seconds. And we heard those haunting words, I can't breathe, and killed him. As a result of this confluence of events, we saw an historic uprising in 2020, or rather a series of uprisings. There was a, a, a report that estimated uh, on June 6th, which was one of the peaks of the uprisings, half a million people turned out in 550 different cities in support of black lives all on the same day. Four polls estimate that between 15 million and 26 million people have participated in protests, and that was just up until last June. And according to one article, these figures would make the recent protests the largest movement in the nation's history. As I say, those grand words, now is the civil rights movement of our day. We can look at the scope of the uprisings and know that it's even bigger than what was happening 
This didn't last for one week or one month or, or, or two months. It was going on and on and on and not in just one city or one state, but nationwide and even internationally. There was national interest in racial justice. Even my little book made the New York Times bestseller list as people focused renewed attention on this long problem of racism in the country. And we saw some changes. Many people would call them symbolic, but, but, but I, don't, I don't get down on symbolic changes. You know why? Because symbols tell stories. Ask any student who, 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 who would go to the entrance of the University of Mississippi and up until 2020, what greeted them was a statue of a Confederate soldier. If you had told me at the beginning of 2020 that NASCAR would ban Confederate flags from its races, I would have asked, what are you drinking? Washington DC football name finally changed its mascot and my favorite, the state of Mississippi finally changed its flag. That horrific symbol and reminder of white supremacy had flown over the state with the highest proportion of black people of any state in the union since 1894. And only in 2020, amidst these protests and uprisings, did lawmakers finally gain the temerity to bring it down. Symbols matter. But it's not only that. A movement is not just known by the progress it makes, but by the opposition it faces. A movement is not known just by the progress it makes, but by the opposition it faces. And aren't we facing some opposition? We can look at, at January 6, 2021, a day that will go down in infamy, an insurrection at the Capitol. Do you think that insurrection was disconnected from the fact that black and brown voters had turned out in historic numbers to deliver the election to Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and not the previous president? You got to be savvy. You got to connect these things. There's always a racial element. I don't think we've paid enough attention to the fact that the Department of Homeland Security annually issues a domestic threat assessment. assessment. And do you know what the number one threat was? White supremacist extremists. The number one domestic terror threat in the United States. People often talk about when, when, when there is racial progress, when there is racial justice, there is a backlash or sometimes labeled a white lash. Because white supremacy does not go down without a fight. I could go on and on, but brothers and sisters, what more evidence do you need? How many more marches? How many more protests? How many more deaths will it take to convince you that we are in the modern day civil rights movement? And what will it take for you to realize that like the Jews were in mortal danger in Esther's day, black people, people of color, and their allies are also in danger. And we must respond in such a time as this. And we can learn from Esther. We can learn how they recognize the fierce urgency of now. We can learn how they recognize such a time. Haman uh, gets uh, King Xerxes to issue this death decree. 
Esther 3.9, if it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy the Jews, and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. You know, there's always money involved. I, I, I don't have time to get into it today, but one of the things that I often say is that many say that racism or slavery was America's original sin. I like to say slavery was America's original symptom. And its original sin was greed. The greed that undergirded the, the, the strange alchemy of the market that turned people into property to be bought and sold. 10,000 talents of silver perhaps piqued the king's interest here. When Mordecai heard, he sent word to Esther. And he basically said, listen, queen, I know you're up in the palace. I know you're comfortable. I know things are going well for you. But understand that down here on the streets and among the people, we are in danger. We need you to speak up. We need you to intervene on our behalf. We see a couple of things here. Number one, Mordecai identified with the people. He understood the danger they were in, and he joined in the lamentation and the feeling of being in danger. It says in 4.3, there was a great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Mordecai stayed among the people as they were in danger. We also see another thing, that Esther took Mordecai at his word. One of the most frustrating things about doing this racial justice work is the gaslighting. Is people saying that what you have seen and what you experienced is not what you've seen and not what you've experienced. People saying to, to, to black people who have uh, labored and thrived even under the yoke of racism and white supremacy, you're making too big of a deal of it what that person said, what that person did, they didn't mean it. You're just being sensitive. You're the angry black man or the angry black woman, but we see Esther didn't say that to Mordecai. Mordecai, you're making too big of a deal. This death decree, that's not for you. That's just for the bad Jews. Esther took Mordecai at his word. There was no debating back and forth whether this was fake news she didn't dismiss his words or minimize the problem that her people faced. And the question for our time is this, will we identify with the oppressed? Will we look around at our situation and say, well, this issue of racism, white supremacy, it's not affecting me. I'm fine, I'm comfortable. I'm up in the palace doing okay. Or like Mordecai, will we identify with the pain, the suffering, and the lamentation of a people under persecution? And when those people under persecution come to us and, 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 and state their reality, talk about their experience, will we believe them? Or will we minimize and obfuscate and excuse? Will we believe the prophetic voices of the Mordecais among us. Every generation has a moment, a period, a season, a window of opportunity when they can choose to recognize the fierce urgency of now and get involved or not. 
as citizens of this earthly nation and the heavenly kingdom, we must be involved in the modern day movement for civil rights. But the reality is that throughout much of US history, the church, and I mean oftentimes the white church and white Christians, have missed their time when it comes to racial justice. Now, I wrote a whole book about how the church missed its time. Let me just give you one example. Many of you are old enough to remember the days when Billy Graham was actively preaching. There could even be some among us listening today who, who converted to Christianity among, uh, uh, through his evangelistic ministry or resources. Graham stood as the face of evangelicalism for half a century, and, and, and as far as it goes, among his white evangelical contemporaries, he was a little bit ahead when it came to race. In 1953, he pulled down the ropes, dividing black and white people at one of his crusades. Mind you, this is even before the 1954 Brown v. Board decision. In 1957, he invited Dr. Martin Luther King to come and pray at one of his rallies, an invitation that King ultimately took up. And yet by 1963, the height of the civil rights movement, Graham is telling King and other activists to, quote, put on the brakes work through the system. All these demonstrations, these arrests, these boys, that's not necessary. Let the courts settle it. Let the city councils settle it. In my view, Graham represents the perfect example of what King called in the letter from a Birmingham jail, the white moderate. You remember those words. King was arrested on Good Friday in April of 63 and jailed in Birmingham and he wrote a letter and he said, for years now, I've heard the word wait. It rings in the ear of every Negro with piercing familiarity. This wait has almost always meant never. We, come, we must come to see with one of our distinguished jurists that justice too long delayed is justice denied. And then he goes on to say, what happens? Who, 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 who is responsible for this waiting? And he says, I must confess that over the past few years, I've been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I've almost come to the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with your methods of direct action, and who paternalistically believes he can set the timetable for another man's freedom lives by a mythical concept of time who constantly advises the Negro to wait for a more convenient season. King's words can be applied to so many in the church, both then and now. I've heard too many Christians say today in the face of black death, well, they should have just followed the officer's orders, as if that was in itself a death sentence. I hear too many Christians today say that to me that to me and others like me who talk about racism, that we're the ones sowing division. And they act as if we just don't talk about racism, it'll go away. I hear too many Christians today say, I agree that black lives matter, but I do not agree with the marches, the protests, and everything that comes with it. As we see from history and the book of Esther, it is far from inevitable 
that Christians will get involved for such a time as this. It's entirely possible for the church to miss this moment. It's entirely possible that a congregation can miss such a time as this. And that's what Mordecai was trying to tell Esther in verse 14. He says, if you remain silent at this time, if you remain silent, if you remain silent, opens up the possibility that she might not speak up, that she might not act. And yet Mordecai remains hopeful, says, if you remain silent... Relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. You know, a lot of people criticize the Black Lives Matter movement because it's not explicitly a Christian movement. It's not directly derived from the church. But could it be that the Lord has risen up relief and deliverance for black people and other people of color from another place because too many Christians remain silent? God is going to bring relief and deliverance. The only question is, are you going to be part of it? Make no mistake, Jesus cares about justice. And if we don't step up, then God is going to send relief and deliverance. Now is no time to take the tranquilizing drug of gradualism. Now is not the time, as King would say, to mouth pious irrelevancies and vain trivialities about race. Now is the time to get involved. That brings us to our third and final point, how the church can respond this time. I have tried to respond in this present day, put thousands of words on the page that I hope are helpful to some. We referenced earlier the arc of racial justice. I commend it to you. If you are one who wants to take action, it stands for awareness, relationships, commitment, awareness, building the knowledge and, and, and gaining the information about how race and racism and white supremacy function so that we can be wise as serpents but innocent as doves when it comes to fighting racism. Relationships, forging relationships across racial and ethnic lines and uh, not just black folks like me who are in your spaces but the, the black folks who don't speak like you or, 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 or aren't educated like you or don't live in the same neighborhoods as you get to know the majority of black folks in this town of Memphis, not just the folks who are culturally similar to us. And commitment, recognizing that prejudice doesn't just work itself out through people, works itself out through policies, and that we need to commit to taking on structural injustice and institutional change changing laws and policies and practices that govern the way how we interact with one another. And I want to highlight just one way we can commit on the policy level in a direct connection to the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s. Even still today, voting rights are under attack. Lawmakers in 43 different states have proposed changes to voting that would make it stricter, which often falls disproportionately on black people, other people of color, and the poor curtailing the right to vote that we have fought so long and so hard to gain and to protect. The question is not just how we can not miss our time, but why did the church miss its time before? Maybe it's instructive for now. And I, I just want to propose of, of the many reasons, one of the reasons the church missed its time 
was because of fear. Fear. Fear of getting it wrong. What if I say the wrong thing? What if I'm trying to help but I accidentally offend? What if I get canceled? Which, by the way, isn't a thing. Fear of what others will say. Do you remember when Peter went to eat with the Gentiles? He was cool until some people from Jerusalem came down. And then he was afraid of what his contemporaries and what his peers and what the people uh, uh, who he respected would say about him crossing racial and ethnic lines. Fear of losing our own comfort and position like Esther was perfectly comfortable in the king's palace. And if we speak up, it's always a risk to speak up for justice. Don't think that you can remain comfortable or that you can massage your words or your message in such a way that, that your comfortability and your position are not at risk. It's always at risk to stand up for justice. Brothers and, Christian, brothers and sisters, the Christian life has never been safe. It's never been without risk. But we don't wait until we're fearless to get involved in such a time as this. We push through the fear, and we get involved anyway. And we know how the story ends in Esther. She decides to bring her concerns to the king, and it says, when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Oh, that we would have a generation of believers who can say, if I perish, I perish. I'm going to stand up for racial justice. I'm going to fight with all my might. I'm going to speak truth to power. I'm going to speak truth in love. And if I perish, I perish. But God was so gracious to Esther and to, to the Jewish people at this time, the king changed his mind. And actually, in a great reversal, Haman was the one put to death, not the Jews. And we know that a long time later came another Jew. And in order by the ruler of his day, forced he and his family to flee to Egypt at one point. And, and this man came preaching the good news to the poor. He gave sight to the blind. He made the, the, the mute to speak and the deaf to hear. And all for this he gained the death sentence. If I perish, I perish. They came for him in the dark of night in the Garden of Gethsemane. They put him through the sham of a trial. They stripped him naked in public, beat him to a bloody pulp, and they finally nailed his hands and his feet to a cross and hung him until dead. But he didn't stay dead. Because on that third day, he rose up with all power and all glory they tried to kill one man, but through the death of this one man, he offered his life to the whole world. And all of this was made possible because Jesus responded to such a time as this. Jesus recognized the fierce urgency of now. He didn't take the tranquilizing drug of gradualism. He didn't remain silent in the face of his people's oppression and need. Brothers and sisters, because Jesus responded in his time, we can respond in our time. We're in the midst of the modern-day civil rights movement. God has placed the church in the 21st century for such a time as this. God has sent the prophets declaring the danger to the people so that we could respond to the fierce urgency of now. The time is long past for silence. The time is 
is long past for complicity. The time is now to face racism and white supremacy with courage, with confrontation. And now is the time to respond to such a time as this. Amen and amen. Calvary Podcast theme music was composed by Spence Bailey. Special thanks to Robin Banks, Director of Communications at Calvary, and Heidi Rupke, Lenten Preaching Series Coordinator. And thanks to you for listening. If you're curious about Calvary Episcopal Church, we are an eclectic bunch of Christian people who don't all think the same thoughts or dress the same way or vote for the same candidates or even believe all the same things about the mystery of God and what it means to be human. But we do believe that we need each other because of our differences, not in spite of them, and that God calls us into unity, not uniformity. Subscribe to the Calvary Podcast at calvarymemphis.org slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit Calvary in person at the corner of 2nd and Adams in the heart of downtown Memphis, Tennessee.